Would you take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 2? Excuse me, Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 and 2. I'm getting ahead of myself here. <laughs> We're going to begin a new study that will uh, take us through this book over the next probably six months or so as we uh, work through this particular passage. And, you know, I like to do that. I like to work through books of the Bible because I believe that it helps us also to learn how to study the Scripture, how to read it in context, see what the message is, how it applies to life. And what I would really like for each of us is that at the end of a study like this that we would have a very good understanding of the main message of this book. And over time, when you do that, as you go through different books of the Bible, you get a feel for each one and where you need to turn when you have questions or when you're dealing with issues in your life, and you can turn to a specific book of the Bible and understand what the message is. That is just so very, very fruitful in our life. So today we're going to look at Ephesians. We're going to start here. Uh, chapter 1, just two verses. Uh, let me read it for us. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, again, we bow before you because it takes your Holy Spirit to open our eyes and to understand the message of your word. Apart from you, we can do nothing. But when you are at work and you are uh, moving in our heart and illuminating our mind, we understand your word and we see how it applies to our life and our situation. And I pray that this series that we're about to begin would be a very rich one for us as a church, that we would grow in our understanding of what your will is for us, not only as individuals, but corporately, as believers in Christ, the family of God who worship together in this specific location and area and that we would understand how you want to use us to make a difference in our world for Jesus Christ. We pray that in his name. Amen. Well, I'm excited about this particular book. I haven't uh, spoken on Ephesians since I think it was like 94, 93, 94 when we had gone through this letter, so it's been quite a while. And I'm really excited about the message of this book. It is about the church. And one of the things that I think we need in this day and age is a greater understanding of God's purpose and plan for the church. We have such an individual view of Christianity that it's about me, it's about my relationship to God, and it is, but it is always in context of the local church. God sees us in community, our witnesses in community, our interactions, all of the one another's that are talked about in Scripture can only be fulfilled when we are living in community. And it was that corporate witness of the body of Christ in the book of Acts, for example, that literally turned the world upside down. Uh, these were people who loved one another and others outside of the church could see that. They understood God's call. They were willing to live for him in a way that was radically different than the world around them. But it was simply their basic obedience to Christ that made the difference. And so many commentators come to this particular letter and they have some pretty lofty things to say about it. This is high and holy ground. 
Ephesians has been called the Switzerland of the New Testament. We're walking among the Alps here in the mountains. It is called the crown and climax of Pauline theology. William Barclay called it the queen of the epistles. And John Mackay, a former president of Princeton Theological Seminary, called it the greatest, maturest, and for our time, the most relevant of all Paul's writings. Wow. That, that's a little daunting, you know, when you're thinking about speaking about it. The passages that are most intimidating for me in speaking are the ones that are just so rich, so good, I don't want to get in the way. I just want to let God's word speak and get out there. And so as we go through this, hopefully I'll be able to do that. But why were these writers so enthused about Ephesians? What it is about this particular letter that it causes it to deserve those kind of accolades? Well, it is that for one moment, Paul stepped back from the controversial disputes that were going on in the church And he surveyed God's plan for the ages from eternity past to eternity future. When you look at Ephesians, there's no specific problem that is being addressed here. It's not like somebody was challenging the understanding of the gospel. It's not like there was a church discipline issue or another problem that needed to be addressed. This was a good church. This was a healthy church that was doing things right. But Paul wanted to write to encourage them and to expand their understanding of God's plan for the ages. In this letter, God reveals his purpose for us and for the church. And God's desire is to one day bring everything in our world, in our universe, into unity and harmony under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine that? To bring everything, all the nations, all the peoples, all the different spheres of whether it's government or education or media or business, all those different spheres under the lordship of Jesus Christ in complete and total unity. That's going to be an awesome day, isn't it? And his plan is to do that through the church. The church is God's plan to bring the gospel to the nations. The church is God's plan to be that savoring influence in our world that would bring change. This letter is profound and it is theological. There are over 27 doctrines that are taught in Ephesians that start with the doctrine of election in chapter 1 that move through all of the doctrines of salvation that move towards sanctification, how it is that we grow in personal holiness and obedience. It'll talk about spiritual warfare and the battle that we are in. It is very, very practical. Chapters 1 to 3 are more doctrinal, talking about our position in Christ. Chapters 4 to 6 are more practical, but you get get them in both. But you can see how Paul laid out this letter. He wants us to understand who we are in Christ in order that we might know how we are to live in the world. John Stott said that the whole letter is a magnificent combination of Christian doctrine and duty. Christian faith and life, what God has done through Christ and what we must do in consequence. And here is a church that made a profound difference in its community and the surrounding area by the grace of God. 
Ephesus was the leading city in the province of Asia, which would be western Turkey today where it is located. At the time that Paul wrote, it's estimated there may have been 250,000 people living in Ephesus. It was the hub of the seven churches that are mentioned in the book of Revelation, those seven churches that John would address there. Uh, It had a harbor that emptied into the Aegean Sea via the Caister River. And no city in Asia was more populous or more famous. The theater where Paul would speak and would one day be confronted by an angry mob could seat 25,000 people. Now here's a picture of it, I believe, that we have of what that theater looks like. The ruins are still there today, but can you imagine a theater seating 25,000 people in that age? And we also know that the temple of Artemis that was there was three times the size of the Parthenon in Greece. And I think how many, how many people traveled to see the Parthenon because it's been preserved. Uh, we don't have anything preserved in that way in Ephesus, but there is another picture of it uh, that was uh, what it looked like in that day. And it was considered to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, just like those hanging gardens in Babylon. And people came from all over the world to Ephesus. It was on one of the main trade routes between the east and the west. So if you're going from Rome or Athens and you're going uh, to the east, you're going to go through Ephesus. The temple and its treasuries functioned literally as the bank of Asia. So here is a city that was commercial, it was wealthy, it was religious in their own way. Uh, People came there as uh, tourists or travelers to come to this particular city. And here Paul would teach for two years. And the impact of the Christians was so great that all who lived in the province of Asia heard the gospel. I think of that, Paul coming, this uh, beginning of Christianity where very few people had even heard of Jesus Christ yet. And Paul comes and he begins to preach and teach and equip the local church and the gospel begins to ring out from that city to the surrounding areas. Many would come to know the Lord. Many would confess their sins. Acts 19 talks about what happened there. And one example of the profound conversion taking place was that many of the people that were into magic and sorcery and things like that brought their books out, piled them up in the streets, had a big bonfire and burned all of them, if you will. And the value of the books that were burned that day were over 50,000 drachmas, which a drachma was a day's wage. So if you said a day's wage was $50 today, that would be two and a half million. If it was $100, that would be like $5 million worth of books. As people repented of their sin, turned to Christ. It was such a dramatic change that people in the city whose income was tied to the worship of Artemis thought that they were in trouble, that people were going to stop worshiping this goddess and their businesses would decline. A dramatic change took place. Why? How did it happen? 
What can we learn from this letter to the Ephesians that can help us in our life and our ministry here? And I believe that if we are going to be a church that will make a difference for Christ in our community, then three things need to happen. Number one, we need to know our calling. We need to know our calling, that we are called to serve Jesus Christ. When we look at verse 1, we get an understanding of how Paul saw himself. This is a typical way that he would introduce his letter. He would call himself an apostle of Christ Jesus. Sometimes he called himself a bondservant of Christ Jesus. And he understood that it was by the will of God. I am an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And an apostle is a messenger. That's what the word means. It means one sent with a message. And an apostle was under the authority of someone else. It wasn't his message he was bringing. It was the person who sent him. And so God has called Paul to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And Paul would do that wholeheartedly. Uh, He understood that there was a word that he was to bring to the people wherever God sent him. And that word was a word of how they could be forgiven and have hope in Jesus Christ and be saved from their sins. And so Paul went and he began to preach and establish churches wherever God led him. Paul believed that God had a purpose and a plan for his life. There was a reason he was here. In Galatians 1.15 he had said that God set me apart from birth. God set him apart from birth. From the day he was born, he believed that God had this calling on his life and everything that happened to him was part of that preparation. But it never would have happened. He never would have become an apostle except for the grace of God who stopped him in his tracks on the road to Damascus when he met the risen Christ and was forever changed. Paul would wrestle with his calling. He understood that to be an apostle of God, a messenger of God, was a high calling. And he would say, who is adequate for these things? Who can do this? No one. No one can do this in our own strength. But God makes us adequate through Christ. And he would learn to rely upon the grace and power of God. So what do we learn from that? Well, God has a purpose and plan for each of us, too. There's a reason we are here. There's a reason we are in this community at this time and place. And God has a calling on our life that relates to our vocation, the work that we do. You know, when I look back on my life, I think of a story that my mom told me that she didn't tell me until I went into ministry. And she told me, that when I was baptized, that the pastor who baptized me said that this boy should be a minister someday. The reason for that was that my family was Lutheran, and so I was baptized as an infant at that point, and there was another baby girl who was going to be baptized that day, and her grandmother had been to Israel recently and had brought back water from the River Jordan that was used in that baptism service that morning. And the pastor, who was a good man, a godly man, leaned over to my mom and dad, and he said that this boy should be a pastor someday. Was that prophetic? You know, you look back on that and you think, 
You know, God knew certainly what was going on. I think this pastor just thought that that was a special occasion and that was something that had not happened before in that particular church. And he wondered. And my mom didn't tell me that. She actually wanted me to be a teacher in a public school. I think I am a teacher uh, in, in a different setting. But I do love to teach. My dad wanted me to be a farmer to follow in the work that he was doing. But when he knew that God was calling me to ministry, he gave me his blessing. And he said, Rick, if God's called you to preach, that's the greatest thing you can do. And he gave me his blessing to do that with all his heart. Do you know your calling? How would you fill in the blank? I am a blank of Jesus Christ or of Christ Jesus by the will of God. I am a, would you put in whatever occupation you serve in? Would you say that I am a teacher of Christ Jesus by the will of God? Or I am a clerk, or I'm a doctor, I'm a nurse, I'm a farmer, I'm a construction worker, I'm a student. You could put in I am a parent, a husband or wife, or a father or mother or a grandparent of Christ Jesus by the will of God. I believe God wants us to see ourselves in that way that we are all called by God to serve in different vocations in this world, but we are all full-time ministers of Jesus Christ. And when we look at our work that way, or we look at our studies, our education, our training, all of those things, as I am called by Jesus Christ to do this, I think it elevates what we do. That wherever we work, whatever it is, we are representative of Jesus Christ in that place. And I think that's a word that needs to be heard. Do you consider your work as sacred, as holy to the Lord? Because it can be, and it should be. That everything that we do should be to honor Jesus Christ. I think of a young man, his name is David Gordon, and he was working in the summers when he was a student at a golf course as a greenskeeper, and he continued that on until he finished his education and got into the work that God was calling him to do. But he said, early on in my life, I learned that all that we do is to be an act of service to the Lord. And he said, I knew I had no intention to mow greens and fairways for the rest of my life, but for nine summers, I was a greenskeeper. And I regarded it as my calling from God for that time and place. I was ordinarily the first one to arrive, the last to leave. I routinely volunteered for the most unpleasant or demanding work. And I could run any piece of equipment in the shop, which made me sort of a utility infielder for my boss. He talked about how viewing his calling changed things. That what he was doing there, even in that summer job, was service to Jesus Christ. And so he wanted to do that well in a way that honored him. We are the church. We are called to serve Christ in the world, and the place where each of us can have the greatest influence in ministry is with the people who work around us when we love and honor Jesus Christ. And when we love them, and when we use our gifts to be a blessing to the people around us, 
God uses us and the church has an impact on the world. Secondly, we need to know our position in Christ. Paul writes in the second half of this verse, this letter is addressed to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. What's really interesting, though, is that in the oldest and best manuscripts that we have, the words in Ephesus are not there. It's just written this letter to the saints, to the faithful in Christ Jesus. There's no mention of Ephesus in those older letters or manuscripts that we have. It seems to be a later insertion. Now, very early on, I mean, the early church fathers uh, wrote that this letter was sent to Ephesus. It was addressed to them, or they viewed it as this letter to the Ephesians. But why that omission? It's a curious thing. And it seems to be that the best answer is that early on, this letter was intended as a circular letter that it was sent to Ephesus as the hub of those churches, but that it was to be read in places like Laodicea and Colossians and Pergamon and Thyatira and all those churches that are addressed that surrounded Ephesus. It was written at the same time as the letter to Colossians was written. There's uh, sections of it that parallel very closely between these two letters. Now, what do I make of that? I think it's intentional that this is a letter that was written to all of us. This is a letter that is very general in its tone that's written to the church in every age and generation. And in it, we are called saints. We are called saints. How do you respond when you hear that word? Do you think of yourself as a saint? You know, that's sometimes difficult for us to accept. Uh, we think of saints as someone who is uh, especially holy or especially good. Our understanding has been shaped in large part by uh, the Catholic Church where uh, they have a process to declare someone a saint. They have a council that's called. They have someone who is nominated for the position and someone who speaks on their behalf. And then the other person who's called a devil's advocate tries to tear down the person. And they have this kind of council that listens to both sides. And when someone's worthiness is established, then they are declared to be a saint. And that understanding is sort of carried over into the way that many people look at that. But that's not what the Bible says. We are all saints. In the Bible, every Christian is a saint. The word saint means that we are set apart, holy to the Lord that we have been given over to him, that Jesus bought us with a price when he paid for our sins by his own blood. When you think about it, uh, maybe this illustration would help us to understand it. You know, in the Old Testament, when the Israelites would build an altar to the Lord, they just used common, ordinary stones to build that altar I mean, they just took what seemed suitable for building that altar and putting it together without, uh, you know, mortar or things that we might use to hold things together. They piled those rocks or they built this altar to the Lord. And once that altar was dedicated to the Lord, those rocks that formed it were holy. They were set apart 
for a different purpose. Common, ordinary stones, but now given, devoted to God. And when God calls us into a relationship with his son, I mean, we're just ordinary people. We're no different than anyone else around us in this world. But when God calls us into a relationship with himself, everything changes. And we are now holy to the Lord. We are set apart for a different reason. And that's that understanding of saints, that we have a different calling. We live by a different set of values, that we are here to honor Jesus Christ and to put him first. Saints are those who have faith in the Lord Jesus. You can't be a saint without faith in Jesus Christ, and everyone who has faith in him is a saint. Saints are those who also keep the faith, who are faithful in Christ Jesus, who listen to his word, respond to it, put it into practice in their life. They take to heart what God has said. And saints are those who are in Christ. That phrase, in Christ, or in Christ Jesus, or something similar, is a phrase that Paul uses 164 times in his letters. Our union with Christ is the most important thing about us. That's what changes everything. And in Ephesians, we're going to see this strong link between faith and conduct, faith in the way that we live, that those who are saved by grace also now live by grace, that those who have a genuine faith in Christ will live differently in the world. And if there's a disconnect there and somebody's not living in a way that honors Jesus Christ, there's a reason to question if they are a believer at all. Have they really come to know Jesus Christ if there's no desire to please him or to follow him? Saints live differently. I like how one little girl answered the question one day when she was asked, what is a saint? She had grown up in a church where there were stained glass windows in the sanctuary of her church. And when she thought about that question, what is a saint? She said, a saint is a person the light shines through. It's a good answer. Are you a person that the light of Christ shines through? And then thirdly, if we're going to make a difference in our community in this area for Christ, we need to remember that all that we have comes from God through Jesus Christ. And we see that in verse 2, where Paul again takes this typical greeting. He says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But he changes it, and it becomes a powerful greeting for the church. Paul began his letters, like he did many others, with these two words, grace and peace, grace and peace. Grace was a typical Greek greeting, but Paul expands on it. This is the grace that comes from God. This is God's riches at Christ's expense. All that we have, all the blessings that come into our life, including salvation, are because of God's grace, and that's going to be a theme in this letter. And peace was a typical Jewish greeting. Only in uh, Hebrew, it would have been the word shalom. And that word shalom, you can't find one English word that encompasses all of it. It includes the ideas of peace or of well-being, of blessing, of wholeness, 
All of those things were part of this idea of shalom. We wish you God's very best, his blessing on your life, health and wholeness and all of those things that come with. And it too comes from God through Jesus. God is the source of every blessing in our life. And these words of grace and peace are going to be repeated throughout this letter. Starting in verse 3 next week, when we uh, begin to unpack this, this first section of Scripture, we're going to see that the scope of God's blessings for us is staggering. We are rich beyond belief because of what we have in Jesus Christ. That we are seated in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. It is good for us to slow down and to read these verses which we'll be getting into and to unpack it and think about all that God has already done for us and all that awaits us when we get to heaven. This letter will take us from the throne room of heaven to the battlefield on earth. And that's kind of a theme I want to talk about here when we start out and he talks about what has happened to us and what we have in heaven already in our possession. But then he takes us to the battlefield on earth to live out our faith day to day in this world. That uh, phrase actually comes from my son Jason. We were talking about the book of Ephesians and he's done some teaching on this also at Trinity And that's one of his phrases that I said, can I borrow that? I like that. From the throne room of heaven to the battlefield on earth. Another way that you can outline the book of Ephesians is by three simple words, sit, walk, stand. That we are already seated in the heavenlies with Christ. That's verses 1 to 3. We are to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's chapters 4 and 5. And we are to stand against the attacks of the enemy, clothed with the armor of God. That's chapter 6. It is powerful. We have everything we need to live for Christ and to do that well. And in the same way that the Christians in Ephesus were called to live for Christ in their world, so we're called to live for Christ in our world. In Ephesians, we're going to see that they were dealing with an area that was prosperous, It was commercial, it was materialistic, a lot like our world. Ephesians or Ephesus was also pagan. It was preoccupied with sex. It was superstitious. So was our world. Ephesus was just like the modern world. That's why this book is so relevant for us. So the question is, how can we stay faithful to God in an environment like this? How do we continue to live for Christ? The key is our union with him. That's the key to everything. Jesus himself said that in John 15 when he said, Remain in me, for apart from me you can do nothing. Our union with Christ is a source of strength, source of wisdom, source of power, It's God who changes us from the inside out. So we're going to move through this letter and we're going to walk in the Alps. We're going to make some fantastic discoveries along the way. 
Some of this will be reminders for those of you who have studied this book before. For others, it may be new discoveries and insights that you have not seen before. I think for all of us, there are things that always strike us in a new way or that stand out to us as we come before God's Word humbly asking Him to teach us. There is much to see and discover here. And if we are going to be a church that makes a difference for Christ in our community, this is where it starts. We need to know our calling, that God has called us to serve, and we do that best through the vocations that we have been given. We need to know our position in Christ, that we are secure in him. We are a son or daughter of the living God, and he is alive and at work in us. And we need to rely upon his grace and power each and every day. Let's pray. Father, it is only by your grace that we can stand. It is your grace that has brought us into your family. It's your grace that changed us and continues to change us. And Father, I pray that you would raise our eyes to see all that you have prepared for us in the future too. That we would see how great is your love for us and live in a way that is worthy of our calling. And God, may you be pleased with us. May we give this our best effort. May we as a church seek to be all that you want us to be in this community and area that the word of God would resound from this place to surrounding communities, to neighboring churches, as we send out missionaries to serve in other parts of the world. May you be pleased and continue to do the work that you have already begun in us. In Jesus' name, amen.